Amen. Thanks, guys. Turn your Bibles to Jeremiah 52. Um, it was sort of, I enjoy walking around a little bit during worship. I don't know if it's nerves or whatnot, but I, uh, we purposely at Crossview have the children in with us for the first part of worship, and we often say it's so that they can watch us, watch you, and learn how to worship. Um, I think the other side of that is true as well, right? Like we see kids worshiping. I was watching a couple of our young ones dancing freely, and uh, it reminded me that, that there's something in the freedom to name our need and our trust and our love for God. And um, we hope more and more as we worship together that becomes what we all experience and we all feel. Real quickly before we jump into uh, Jeremiah 52, uh, Bob Holdorf, long, long time member of Crossview Covenant Church, uh, passed away late this last week, and his funeral will be tomorrow at 1.30. And uh, it's one of those, Bob was a faithful, faithful man. Part of the beauty of 125 years of history at Crossview is we stand on the shoulders of those who've gone before us, and Bob is, is for sure one of those people. So 1.30 tomorrow, uh, the viewing will start at 11.30, and uh, if, if you knew Bob, we would love to have you there to celebrate his life with us. So let me pray before we jump in the word. God. Uh, this is one of those passages, one of those chapters where um, more so than most, I, I, I feel like I need your presence. I feel like we need your presence, your voice to speak. So God, would you please do that? Would you please speak? Um, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. All God's people said... Amen. We are in a year-long series where we're getting this big overview of the Bible using a tool called the Wayfinding Bible. And um, last week we looked at Isaiah 11, which is a passage that's often used during Advent, which is the weeks leading up to Christmas. And Isaiah 11 is the story of this, this stump. And the stump represents Israel. It seems like all hope is gone. Nothing could ever grow again. And the promise is something will begin to grow from this stump. And uh, the passage that we're going to deal with today is somewhat similar, that things seem hopeless. And uh, Jeremiah 52 was, for me, a wrestling match all week. Jeremiah 52, I think, I would liken this to a really bad country song. Girlfriend leaves, dog dies, lose job, and truck breaks down, and the song's over. I mean, that, that's literally how it feels, and you get to the end of Jeremiah 52, I... I Asked God, and this is not just some facetious sort of, I, I asked God, uh, please don't, don't let me have to read this passage out loud because it's dark, it's painful. If you have young kids in here, you may have to do the earmuff thing a couple of times, um, but it's in here for a reason, right? And so how do we deal with passages like this? And Jeremiah had a tough job. Jeremiah is a prophet in the Old Testament. The prophets literally spoke for God. They said the words of God, and they were often around judgment to the people. In the New Testament, we talk about the gift of prophecy, and that is more naming something that's broken, something that is not right, something that's unjust in the ruler of the church, and, and naming it out loud so that we can have healing. But in the Old Testament, it was the voice of God to God's people. And Jeremiah, in this book, it had to be a, a dark, tough book to write because he's saying, Israel, God's people, you're going to be destroyed. You can repent and turn back to God, but we see time and time again in the Old Testament this narrative where the invitation is, you're going to be destroyed if you don't repent. They don't repent, they're destroyed. And not only does he have to go to God's people and say, you're going to be destroyed, he then has to go to Babylon and say, you're going to be destroyed as well. And... Uh, 
the end of the book, you have a little bit of hope, a little glimmer of hope. Uh, a lot of scholars would say chapter 1 through 51 of Jeremiah was written by Jeremiah, and then 52 was probably added on later. And it was added on to say, see, the prophecies came true. What Jeremiah had said actually happened. And so with all that said, and I... We've been reading, if you're new, we've been reading, trying to read the whole passages when we can. So we are going to read all the way down through Jeremiah 52. So bear with me, and then uh, we're going to talk through a tough, challenging subject after we read through Jeremiah 52. Verse 1. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. His mother was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah from Libna. But Zedekiah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, just as Jehoiakim had done. That's the normal thing that we're seeing in the rulers of God's people. That these were evil people. These things happened because of the Lord's anger against the people of Jerusalem and Judea until he finally banished them from his presence and sent them into exile. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We, we rarely talk about God's judgment, but this morning we're going to spend time after we read down through this saying, what is the wrath of God? What is judgment all about? Because we see it a lot in scripture. So we need to actually talk about it. Keep reading. Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. So on January 15th, during the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon led his entire army against Jerusalem. They surrounded the city and built siege ramps against its walls. Jerusalem was kept under siege until the 11th year of King Zedekiah's reign. But by July 18th, in the 11th year of Zedekiah's reign, the famine in the city had become very severe. The last of the food was entirely gone. Then a section of the city wall was broken down and all soldiers fled. Since the king was surrounded by Babylonians, they waited for nightfall. Then they slipped through the gate between two walls behind the king's garden and headed towards the Jordan Valley. But the Babylonian troops chased King Zedekiah and overtook him on the plains of Jericho, for his men had all deserted him and scattered. They captured the king and took him back, uh, took him back to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath. There the king of Babylon pronounced judgment upon Zedekiah. The king of Babylon made Zedekiah watch as he slaughtered his sons. He also slaughtered all the officials of Judah at Riblah. Then he gouged out Zedekiah's eyes and bound him in bronze chains. And the king of Babylon led him away to Babylon. Zedekiah remained there in prison until his death. So things are, things are really bad. Your city's overtaken. It's not looking good. And it's only going to get worse. Verse 12. On August 17th of that year, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Nebuzaradan, those of you who are with child, there's a name for you. The captain of the guard and an official of Babylonian king arrived in Jerusalem. He burned down the temple of the Lord. And by the way, if you're new to this whole scripture thing, the two most important things for God's people are your city, Jerusalem, because that, that's, that's the hub of all things, if, if, if you are a, a true follower of God, a Jewish person. And then the maybe even more important reality is the temple. The temple is where God dwelt. In their mind, that's where they went to meet God. It's where commerce happened. It's where worship happened. And now all of this is destroyed. It can't get any worse. The royal palace and all the houses of Jerusalem. He destroyed all the important buildings in the city. Then he supervised the entire Babylonian army as they tore down the walls of Jerusalem on every side. Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took as exile some of the poorest of the people, the rest of the people who remained in the city, the defectors who had declared their allegiance to the king of Babylon, and the rest of the craftsmen. 
But Nebuzaradan allowed some of the poorest people to stay behind to care for the vineyards and fields. The Babylonians broke up the bronze pillars in front of the Lord's temple, the bronze water carts, and the great bronze basin called the sea, and they carried all bronze away to Babylon. They also took all the ash buckets, shovels, lamps, snuffers, basins, dishes, and all other bronze articles used for making sacrifices at the temple. The captain of the guard also took small bowls, incense burners, basins, pots, lampstands, ladles, bowls used for liquid offerings and for all other articles made of pure gold or silver. It's interesting, some of the very particular information that we're giving this. I have no idea what it is, but it's, it's intriguing. Verse 20, the weight of the bronze from the two pillars, the sea with the 12 bronze oxen beneath it and the water carts was too great to be measured. These things had been made for the Lord's temple in the days of King Solomon. Each of the pillars was 27 feet tall and 18 feet in circumference. They were hollow with three inches, with walls three inches thick. The bronze capital on top of each pillar was seven and a half feet high and was decorated with a network of bronze pomegranates all the way around. There were 96 pomegranates on the sides and a total of 100 pomegranates on the network around the top. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took with him as prisoners Sariah, the high priest, Zephaniah, the priest of second rake, and three chief gatekeepers. And from among the people still hiding in the city, he took an officer who had been in charge of the Judean army, seven of the king's personal advisors, the army commander's chief secretary, who was in charge of recruitment, and 60 other citizens. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took them all to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And there at Riblah, in the land of Hamath, the king of Babylon had them all put to death. So the people of Judah were sent into exile from their land. And it, it, the whole idea of being in exile is another place we could go with this text. But the, the word for exile literally means that they're uncovered. That you're removed from all that you know from your home. And there's this sense of being uncovered. Verse 28. The number of captains taken to Babylon in the seventh year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign was 3,023. Then in Nebuchadnezzar's 18th year, he took 832 more. In Nebuchadnezzar's 23rd year, he sent Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, who took 745 more, a total of 4,600 captives in all. And then here's this glimmer of hope at the end of things are really, really bad. Verse 31. In the 37th year of the exile of King Jehoiakim in Judah, evil Muradak ascended to the Babylonian throne. He was kind to Jehoiakim and released him from prison on March 31 of that year. He spoke kindly to Jehoiakim and gave him a higher place than all the other exiled kings in Babylon. He supplied Jehoiakim with new clothes to replace his prison guard, garb and allowed him to dine in the king's presence for the rest of his life. So the Babylonian king gave him regular food and allowance as long as he lived. This continued until the day of his death. Not a fun ending to this book and we could probably talk about it a few different ways but I want us to deal with verse 3. Simply because we don't often deal with the idea that wrath or anger could, be perhaps, could perhaps be part of who God is. And let me start with a couple of, uh, of sort of disclaimers. I, I think when we enter into a topic like this, we have to understand it's a conversation. Um, I, I hope you understand when you come to Crossview and we open God's word, I am not up here as the end all say all on subjects. We do it in community. We do it together. And especially around a subject of God's anger or wrath, we do it in conversation. We get into God's word. We try and be faithful to God's word. But not one in here has it figured out. Can I get an amen? We're on this journey together. And I think that's important to name before we go into this. I, I personally get nervous, especially when it's around a subject like the anger of God, when somebody has it figured out. Or somebody almost speaks for God because 
I tend to believe 1 Corinthians 13 is true, that we see through a glass dimly. We, don't, we, we can know God, we can experience God. That's, that's the journey that we're all on, getting to know God more and more. We talked about it last week. But on this side of eternity, we will not have it totally figured out. And that is why we approach this together on the journey that we are on. So before we jump in it, let's just name how we walk into this conversation around the anger of God. How we walk into it. I think many of us tend to put God in a box. For some of us, and if you think about it, our understanding of God is highly influenced by our experience, right? It's highly influenced by our experience. You've heard me tell this story before of the church I planted in Philadelphia. When we first started going, these two sisters came to Christ and they started coming to church and growing in the Lord. And one of the things they really struggled with was to say the Lord's Prayer. Because to say, Our Father... For them, when they said father, it went back to a situation growing up where there was abuse going on. And so their understanding of God as father was highly influenced by the relationship they had with their father. And we talk about the wrath of God. We also bring that very same thing in. For some of us, our our little box that we have God in, we want nothing to do with the wrath of God. God is all love, all grace, all mercy. For others of us, we we tend to weigh pretty heavy on the wrath of God, on the idea that there is this angry, just God. And it often comes from our experience. For some of us, we grew up in a very conservative Christian setting where we tended to weigh a little more heavily on this side of the anger and justice of God. And that tends to drive, at times, our understanding of who God is and how we experience God. So as we go into this, let's name those. Let's be honest with those. Let's be honest that we don't have it figured out. I spend much time this week looking at different books and scholars have spent years and careers and hours and books trying to define what what is the justice thing? What is this anger, wrath of God? So please understand we're starting a conversation here and we all bring our story into it. We all bring our, our, our desire for what we maybe want or don't want this type of thing to be. And my prayer is we can submit to the text and what is this teaching us this morning. So let's start with this. I think to walk into a conversation around the anger of God, we have to start with talking about sin. And that's in the story here, that God's anger is only after he said, you're going to be judged, but you won't be judged if you turn from it and repent. And yet Zedekiah, the king, still rebels against God. And so God's anger is at the sin. God's wrath is at the sin. One of the passages that we read in the New Testament around the wrath of God is Romans 2, verse 7 and 8, where it says, He will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, seeking after the glory and honor and immortality that God offers. And here it is. But he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves who refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness. So what is this wrath? What is this anger of God? And it's important because if you remember last week, we talked about the idea of kings and kingdoms. Jesus talked about the kingdom of God more than anything. And we talked about the fact that Jesus is the king of this kingdom of God. And we said we need to get to know the king. And if part of who Jesus is, part of who God is, entails wrath or entails anger. What does that mean? What does it mean for us? What does it mean as we follow this king? The Geneva Study Bible, when commenting on Jeremiah 52, verse 3, where it talks about the wrath of God, the anger of God, says this. So the Lord punished sin by sin and gave him, gave Zedekiah, up to his rebellious heart. 
and come back to that in one second. So a few months ago, back in September, we looked at Genesis 3 and we said, sin at its core is unbelief. Sin at its core is unbelief. Choosing to not believe that God is who God says he is, that the ways of God are actually good. It's unbelief at its core. And the opposite of unbelief is belief in something else, right? So if I choose to not believe God, I believe in something else. I believe in my ways. I believe in some other way, but I live a life apart from God. At its core, sin is unbelief. And Zedekiah has chosen to sin. Say, God, I don't believe that you are actually a good ruler. I don't believe you are actually, and you could make the list. And what the Geneva Study Bible is saying around the wrath of God is not God just arbitrarily walking around choosing who he's going to punch or hit or kick or get away, do, do away with. But God's wrath on Zedekiah and God's wrath, I think this will help us as we look at, at what it really is for our lives. God's wrath is leaving us to the consequences of our sin and unbelief. God's wrath is leaving us to the consequences of our sin and unbelief. And that makes sense. We get that. If you're a parent or if you're a child, you understand that there are times where as a parent, when a child chooses to do what is wrong again and again and again, and especially those of you maybe have teenage children who've walked away from God, or you were that kid one day, right? Back in the day. You understand that as a parent, one of the most loving things that you can do at a certain point is say, you have chosen to walk away from me, to walk away from God again and again and again, and we simply leave you to your choices. That's, in essence, what this is about. God saying, you are choosing to sin, to not believe that my ways, what I have, is actually the best for you. And so I leave you to that. So think about it with me a little bit. If we were to, if one of us, or if we were to choose to flirt, develop an emotional emotional relationship with a coworker, what's the consequence? Most likely an affair, and a ton of broken relationships. Right? Just get our minds around this. If we make gossiping or triangulating a norm in our friendships, in our relationships, what's the consequence? More than likely, a continuing, ongoing line of hurt relationships, fractured relationships. What if we choose to consistently look at pornography? What's the consequence? The consequence is a growing inability to be intimate in the relationships that God has put us in. So when we choose to live a life apart from the ways of God, the consequences often are, maybe not death in a literal sense, but a sense of death in the soul. And that's for all of us. It's, that's not, you know, maybe you're here for the first time or you're coming back to this whole church thing and you're like, whoa, choose a, choose a fun Sunday, right? But this is actually a good Sunday to be here. Because we understand that even when we are choosing to run away from God, the invitation is still to repent of our sin and turn back towards God. And for those of us who put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we know that on this side of eternity, we still struggle. We still are prone to not believe that God is God and his ways are good and to choose our ways and to choose our brokenness and to choose the world around us. 
And so this is a message for all of us that we need to hear badly. Consequences to sin, to choosing unbelief. For Zedekiah, it was complete destruction. We know for us, we know the destruction when we choose life apart from God. Think about the context and, and, and God's anger on Jeremiah. We could have a lot of uh, conversation around this, but it, it's intriguing that this relationship between leaders and uh, a kingdom, that God is angry most specifically at the leader. That would be an intriguing case study to look at churches that often fall apart, to look at family structures that fall apart, that what did it look like between the leadership and those who were following. So God's anger in this context begins there, and the followers of this King Zedekiah had begun to live in the same way. So God is not only angry at the leader, he's angry at the people. If you look at the book of Jeremiah, they have chosen to worship idols. They have chosen to neglect the people among them who are in need. There was injustice everywhere, and that's where God's anger is directed, and it's directed by saying, you are choosing to live this life apart from me, and I give you over to it. Zedekiah, you broke the covenant that you have with me, but you're also breaking the covenant that you have with Nebuchadnezzar. You're going to be destroyed. God's wrath is leaving us to the consequences of our sin. I think we need to be really, really careful that we don't equate God's anger or wrath with abuse or power. And that's hard for us. We, we don't totally understand it, but God's anger is always just. God's anger is always good. God's anger is always hard to comprehend, right? Right? It's interesting. In, con- in contrast with the teaching about God's anger, we see all these teaching in the Old Testament about God's mercy. Listen to some of these. Exodus 34 says this, He is merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth. Psalm 86 says, He is good, ready to forgive, and abundant in mercy, full of compassion, gracious, and long-suffering. Numbers 14 says, The Lord is long-suffering of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgressions. Psalm 103 says, He has not dealt with us according to our sins, for as far as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his mercy. Almost seems like a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde situation. That What is it? And that's where we put God in a box, and we tend to say it's, it's one or the other. Instead of saying it's the beauty of who God is, we, we wouldn't want to be boxed ourselves into you have to only be this or this, right? It's the beauty of all that God is, that God is love and mercy and kindness and hope and God is justice and God has anger at the things that are apart from him. It says the same thing in the Old Testament. Isaiah 60 verse 10. In my wrath I struck, in the same verse, in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor, I have had mercy on you. Hosea 6.1, he is torn, but he will heal us. He is stricken, but he will bind us. Saying that it's, it's not one or the other, it's both. Like God's anger and wrath is there and it's good and it's just and it's right. When people choose life apart from God, God says, I leave you to that. That's the anger of God. But on the same hand, God also walks towards us saying, that's not the end of the story. It's not where my story ends. 
Psalm 78, 38 says, Many a time he turned his anger away. Isn't that interesting? Many a time he turned his anger away and did not stir up all his wrath. The beauty of where we stand. The beauty of where we stand is that we not only have Jeremiah 52, but we have Jesus Christ. In John 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, was with God, and the Word was God. In other words, Jesus Christ is God in human form. And everything we need to know about God, we see in Jesus Christ. So when we look at an Old Testament passage like this, we still say, we look at this through the lens of Jesus Christ. And Jesus did get angry. Jesus walked into the temple and overturned tables. And it wasn't just because he didn't like the tables, because there were leaders, religious leaders, who were selling sacrifices above what they should be selling them for so that the poor among them couldn't join in and worship. And Jesus walks in and says, that's not right, that's not just, and turns the tables over. And they were sinning. So we don't choose just the things we like about God. We try and understand the whole of who our king is so that we can more faithfully follow God. So here's the deal. We read a passage like this. It's always challenging. How do you end a sermon about God's anger? Um, And I think the invitation that Israel had is the same that we have. That God is a just God. That God does judge that there is an actual wrath to God. And the invitation in the Old Testament is the same as the New Testament. That we choose to not believe in God. And God says, repent and turn towards me. That's what it is. It's a loving God. It's a just God who says, repent, turn back towards me. Choose to believe in me. And for some of us in this room, that's a first-time message you've heard. You know that there is a creator of the universe. You know that there is something other than you that you need. And God says to you, repent from all the different things that you're believing in that are actually destroying you and choose life with me. And for the rest of us, we need the same story. On this side of the new heavens and new earth, We need to hear time and time again God's invitation to say, believe in me. We choose so many things, and God God can turn us over to them. We choose so many things that are life apart from God, and God says, repent and turn back to me. Amen? It's the invitation. So I want to do as we close the service. We're going to close it a little differently. We're not going to have a closing song. I want to give us about 30 seconds of silence for you to talk with God and to repent and turn from the places of sin and disbelief in who God is. We listed some of them before that probably um, challenged some of us. But you know what yours are. Repent, turn from that sin, and I'm going to close this by reading Psalm 51. Take a moment. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me, clean me from my guilt. Purify me from my sin, for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned 
I have done what is evil in your sight. You'll be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Give me back my joy again. You've broken me, now let me rejoice. Don't keep, don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O oh God who saves then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. Father, would you, for each one in this room, for some for the first time, for all of us, God, I pray that we would continually know that we are invited to repent and turn from our sin, our brokenness. And God, to, to take seriously those places of sin and brokenness in us where, where we can be given over to your wrath and your anger when we choose life completely apart from you. Father, I pray that you daily would do that good work in us. Allow us to return back to you. And give us the joy that David talks about, the joy of our salvation. For this in your name. Amen. If you need prayer for any reason, please come on up under the cross. We have some people that would love to pray with you or for you. And for the rest of you, go in peace.